Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. Today, we were joined by our on-the-tape co-host, Danny Moses, at the iConnections Digital Assets Forum in Miami. We discussed the macro headwinds facing the markets and sat down with iConnections CEO, Ron Biscardi. So check it out. And if you'd like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. iConnections is a proud sponsor of Risk Reversal's On The Tape podcast. And this is a hybrid format with the CNBC Fast Money 1 p.m. Market Call. No. No? Did I get it wrong? No CNBC. No CNBC. This is our market call, Risk Reversal Media. We do it, Guy and I, every Monday through Thursday at 1 o'clock here. So this is broadcasting live on Twitter and YouTube Live right now. Amazing. So they're going to kick this off, and then our very own Ron Biscardi, our CEO, will be joining us halfway through. So I'm fired up. Caitlin, are you you excited? Like, you put this whole thing together. Are you happy with the crowd? The engagement, the energy in the rooms—it's—it's it's amazing. I could tell. Yeah, I could. I could I, sense that. You're bringing you. everyone back from lunch. They're going to be excited. So lunch was. I'll leave it to you guys. Lunch was great, by the way. Yeah, it was great. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> guy, why don't you kind of set the room here? Here we One are. One o'clock right, Eastern time. Go. Market call. Live. You by, it's always live. Oh, yeah. We are always live. But IRL. Eastern time. Market call brought to you by our presenting sponsor, FactSet. But I connections as well as Caitlin mentioned, and Dan and I had the great opportunity to partner up with Ron and the folks at I connections a couple months ago. We're here at this event. We're loving the fact that we're here. We're obviously going to talk to a lot of folks out in the audience and stuff. We're doing a couple other panels, I think, later. Hopefully, we'll see you folks at dinner. But we're thrilled to be here, and this is the forefront of everything that's going on, sort of in the digital asset world. So it's great to be here, Danny. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. And Danny, thanks for joining us here at this here. fine event. All right, let's talk about the markets here because, um, you know, this was what, Danny? It was QT day. I saw you, like, tweeting it out this morning. You're oh, all, yeah, you know, yeah, you were all excited day. about it. It's yeah. QT. What, yeah. is that, what does that mean? Quantitative tightening day. What does that mean, Danny, to you? It means the Feds no longer have the, have the back of the investors. But what are they doing right now? Or they what are, are they letting not their doing? portfolios run off that okay. they've been buying. feels like the last 100 years, but the last 13, 14 years of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And, you know, the, we've already kind of anticipated this, so the market's yeah. been pricing in some of it. Certainly yeah. in mortgages, everybody knows mortgage rates are up a lot. Yeah. That's part of it here, but now it's actually starting and beginning, so we'll see what happens. Danny, six months or so ago, it might be longer at this point, you said you went from being bearish to being scared. And when somebody like you says, I'm being serious for a second, <laughs> says something like that, there's some gravitas there because you don't just throw those around loosely. And you obviously saw something, and a lot of it's coming to fruition. You saw something that encouraged you last week, but not encouraged you to the point of like, this is over, but encouraged you to the point of, you know, maybe the market was sort of finding its footing. But speak to what you're seeing over the last week or so because things are changing seemingly by the minute. Just to be clear, how dare I tweet anything that's remotely bullish? And all I did was try to be constructive and say, you know, it was a good sign last Monday. I think we saw some of the quality names leading the market higher that did not seem to be the bullish. It just felt like the washout in certain names had taken place, the Walmarts, the JP Morgan, and so forth. But it's scary because we've been lab rats for the last 13 years, and we've been in an experiment, and it's been a powerful experiment, trillions and trillions of dollars. And if, if you look at just the asset levels on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet relative to the market, you, you can't see the difference. So you have to assume, as the Fed unwinds their balance sheet here and raising rates at the same time, that's a witch's brew, as our friend Jim Chanos would say. And so that, to me, is just scary because we haven't been stock picking or bond picking 
for 13 years. It's just been hold your nose and buy whatever yeah. you want. Now it's now things stink. The world changed. So David Tepper will come on CNBC in years past, and he frustrates me, although he's a brilliant investor, because he makes it so simple. And I think I try to make everything more complicated than it needs to be. When the Fed was adding liquidity, he would say, listen, this is the environment we find ourselves in. Don't fight the Federal Reserve. And that makes me crazy, but there's obviously a truth to it. So if that's true, Danny, when the Fed is adding liquidity and by fighting the Federal Reserve, you're bearish, it stands to reason that if you're bullish now, you're fighting the Federal Reserve. Is that an accurate statement? 100% accurate. And I think finally, and there's some allocators both in crypto and equity in the market. I can see them out there. This is going to be a stock picker's market for the next, I think, several years, this cycle. That's the exciting part about it. So stuff gets taken out. So you have a combination here, Guy. Passive investing has grown to an unsustainable level, right? Just buy, if you're, if you're a retail broker and you have someone's account and they have a couple million dollars, you don't get paid anymore for stock selection. That went away years ago. You got paid to allocate, oh, you like the builders? Oh, you like retail? Oh, you like financials? In each of those sectors, there's shorts and longs. I've always said that. The reason I'm no longer in the active money management business is because stock picking went away. Um, and if it keeps coming back, I want to jump back in it because there is stuff, particularly on the long side, that I think there's, be, there's going to be great opportunity. But I'll call them orphan stocks. You have a lot of these tech stocks which are lost and gone forever. It's year 2000. They're just going to be, they're going to go down, keep going down from here because fundamentals are what's going to get the market back up. Bottom up fundamental analysis, I think. So. Janet Yellen admitted, I think it was yesterday, that they basically, I don't want to say she said for everybody, she said she basically whiffed on this whole notion of transitory and inflation wasn't a big of a problem. What frustrates me, Dan Nathan, is the, the inflation that we find ourselves in the midst of is the inflation that they were begging for yeah. for years. And I bring that up not to sort of harp on the Federal Reserve, although, as you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a hater, but to point out the fact that I don't think the market's fully comprehending what's going on. And we've had these bounces. The S&P 500 traded down to 39.10 a few weeks ago, bounced up to 40.80. That was a 5% bounce. Subsequently traded down to, I think, 38.10. We saw this subsequent bounce here, 4 or 5%. But it seems like we've gone from that whole buy the dip mentality, the markets that when it rallies, you need to start to take money off the table. Is that, where you're, is that where your head is at here as well? Well, I, I mean, listen, I think it really comes down to how long do we think this period is going to be? <clears throat> Are we going to have a protracted bear market? You know, last week when the S&P was down 20% from its highs made in the first week of January, that seemed to be the thing that kind of got some kind of, I don't know what you want to call them, bargain hunters going. And we had this kind of really sharp rip, what, 6 7% the S&P 500 and maybe 11 12% in the NASDAQ. But again, you know, going back to what Danny's talking about, some of these orphan sort of like tech stocks or whatever, you know, that's kind of always been the case. You know, that was the alpha on the way up, if you think about it, right? Kind of trying to find those stories where people really didn't care about valuation. And now they've obviously been correcting for over a year, many of them down 50, 60, 70, 80% or so. I just bought a stock that had a market cap greater than Bank America at its highs a little more than a year ago that's down 80%. Think about that. I mean, that's not the rinky-dink sort of stuff that we were talking about in 19. 1999. This was a 200. This was PayPal. It was a 200 plus billion dollar market cap company, bigger in market cap than one of the largest financial institutions 
on the planet, you know what I mean? So I just kind of feel like if you're looking at the markets today, you know, we're down what, the S&P 13, 14% right now, the, the NASDAQ's down 23, 24%. We're gonna take this whole experiment that Danny just talked about, the black swan event, which was the pandemic, the trillions of dollars in monetary and fiscal stimulus, the, the, just the, the orgy in risk assets across the board, and we're gonna say that's it, that's, that we're done, you know, you know what I mean? So. We're in the same camp, I think all of us. I think that um, the one thing that we also agree on is that this is gonna just take a lot more time. Large pockets of the stock market, crypto and other risk assets have been correcting for a long time, but there's others that, that when housing turns, it doesn't even have to come in that much. That combination of negative wealth effect from the stock market and then from basically housing and maybe some inflation on the other side of it, which was the original part of your question, that could be the thing that keeps us kind of lower for longer. Yeah, the thing that worries me, and I'm, I wake up worried, so just understand, I grew up in a Wall Street, like what can go wrong will go wrong, definitely half empty, and that's just my, it's not my dogma, it's just I'm predisposed to that, and it's, I guess, served me halfway well, but we'll see. I mention that because as much as some of these other segments of the market are trying to get the Fed's memo, the energy market hasn't. And you're seeing a crude oil now that WTI traded up to 120, backed off a little bit, but that's stubbornly high. And in my opinion, something that's going to continue to go higher, supply-demand fundamentals line up. China getting away from the zero COVID is going to become a huge tailwind. And energy is at the crux of everything, Danny. So they can raise rates all they want, but the crude market doesn't seem to care. No, and every day that goes by and energy prices stay where they are, you've got to input that into your model and your earnings are going up. Meanwhile, there's no CapEx being spent because no one's investing in these energy companies. And they're just saying, okay, fine, but this is what's going to happen. So we now have a long time before you can have enough supply to catch up, to your point, with the demand, throw in the geopolitical risk. And just to put it in a frame of reference, when you look at the S&P 500, I believe energy at one point was under 2% mm. of the S&P 500. We're now double that probably and, go, and moving higher. And it's been higher before in the past. And I think fund managers have been hesitant to kind of pull the trigger because basically what they're saying, if they do that, they're saying energy prices are probably here to stay. And in that case, they need to really evaluate all their, their entire portfolio, what that may mean. Fed can do what they want. Fed can stop raising rates potentially. But if, if oil keeps moving higher, that is a tax on the consumer and it's having a direct impact. And I think that's why we're seeing a slowdown that's been a larger slowdown than you would have thought relative to what the Fed has been doing, which is only 75 basis points at this point. So, yeah, yeah energy is, is, I think, going to be a really interesting sector. It's funny. You know, we had Mike Wilson on our podcast last week. It dropped on Fridays. Check it out in the podcast stores. People. Slow down. You, it's you rushed that. You rushed on that. On the tape. Yeah, Mike, Mike is the, the head uh, strategist, CIO over at Morgan Stanley. He brought up this point about energy. We had a, a very similar conversation, but he brought us back to 2008. And at that point, you know, I, I mean, the financial crisis was upon us for all intents and purposes. Bear had already gone under and, and really, you know, equity markets and risk assets had been correcting at, at that point for six months or so. And oil went to 150 bucks, right? And that was, that was it. But it literally had that parabolic move, and then it spent the next, what, year, year and a half or so. He actually thinks it tops out. You know, if we do have that move past those highs from March, what was that, 130 guy mm -hmm. in crude? So it'll be interesting to see how, how it, you know, if, if history's rhyming here a little bit. But um, I don't know. I, I think playing for sustained energy higher is not particularly great. But to your point, Danny, that they haven't been investing, at least these balance sheets are in much better position than they were in 2008, 9 but then also in that, that global growth scare at 15 and 16. 
Danny, one of the things that's worried, a lot of things worry me again, but the volatility that we've seen in the bond market, not for the last month, but for the last year and a half, two years, I bring it up all the time. Ten-year yields, which should be, again, in my opinion, one of the most liquid assets on the planet, have been trading like $150 million biotech stocks in phase three. It's crazy. We see 15, 20 basis point moves almost on a daily basis. The bond volatility is at historic levels. For whatever reason, it hasn't manifested itself into the broader market. Although, I will add, when a name like Target can move 30% in a day, that's problematic. Can you speak to that? Because I think, I think it's a problem. I don't think the market's fully comprehending that either. I would take that back to Dodd-Frank, Volcker, the bank's broker's inability to really, dealers, we say, to kind of hold inventory of some of this stuff. So by that nature, it's a lot more volatility, a lot more trading in those assets. Put that on top of fixed income ETFs, which we've talked about ad nauseum, that creates, you know, again, a real problem, and it sets up for volatility. I agree. The 10-year should be the most liquid. It is the most liquid asset in terms of size in the world. It should not move like it does. And I think you have a lot of interesting hedging going on. You have a lot of leverage going on. And keep in mind, when the Fed was buying tens of billions of treasuries a month, it was easy. Right now, they're unwinding. And people are trying to find, I think what it comes down to, Guy, is what is the natural level mm -hmm. where this should be trading? What's funny is that there's some days where the market rallies where the 10-year yields are down. Yeah. And I, to me, that's the, that's the nightmare. That means that you know, money's going to eventually come out of equities into bonds. Green light is clear, but that's telling you a slowdown is coming. What you want to see right here, I mean, I, think, I don't know what a break even or where we should be on the 10-year yields, but it's obviously much higher from here. So I think what the market's telling us, what energy, I think, is doing the Fed's job for it to a degree, which is why I believe we won't have as many rate hikes as are being priced in right now. Um, I think we're going to see a slowdown. I think we will have an inverted yield curve here in the, I think in the coming months, if the Fed keeps going. And I think that little, we saw the inversion flattening happen like six weeks ago. I think we're gonna see that again. And then I think a deep breath, we're here, just accept it and move on and be constructive. So, so Guy, um, I think it was a market call and, and definitely on Fast Money on a couple of occasions in, in uh, December. You know, we're at Digital Assets Forum here. You know, you, you kind of had highlighted, again, you don't claim to be, um, you know, some, 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 you're crypto curious, let's say. You know, mm -hmm. and you've had access to a lot of very smart people and you've interviewed a bunch of them. We've had uh, Mike Novogratz, we've had uh, Michael Saylor on our podcast. Um, you know, you had mentioned on a couple of occasions uh, late last year and plenty of times this year that when the Fed did their pivot, when they pivoted and said, we are going to focus on inflation, that was the top in the crypto market by, by market cap. Many of, you know, uh, Bitcoin is down, you know, over 55 percent or something like that. Talk to us a little bit uh, about what you think the Fed and, and, and the potential for another pivot, what that means for, for the crypto land. Yeah, and I don't want to be long winded here. And we're going to bring Ron Biscardi on in a second. He can speak to this as well. But I don't, I don't think it was coincidence at all that Bitcoin effectively topped out within a week of the Fed pivoting in November of last year at 68,000 or so. I think, in my opinion, I think crypto was born from somebody or some group of people concerned that central banks were just running amok. And if you think about it, since inceptions, that's exactly what's happened. So the fact that the Fed finally tried to get responsible, a word that I'm choosing to use, coinciding with the top of Bitcoin, not coincidental. The subsequent move lower makes a lot of sense because the hawkishness out of this Federal Reserve is like nothing we've seen since Paul Volcker. I'll say this, the bounce from 25,500 to the recent levels, 
I think coincided with the economic data that's come out a lot weaker than expected. And I think the interpretation there is the market saying, wait a second, maybe this Federal Reserve doesn't need to be as aggressive as they say they are. And that's why Bitcoin specifically is bounced. I'll say this, and I believe this. If this Federal Reserve blinks for whatever reason, it could be a myriad of reasons, if they blink and pivot once again, to me, that's going to be the green light, not for Bitcoin to go to 68,000, but for Bitcoin to have a sort of six figures before well, the decimal point. I thought you were going to say 680,000. No, I'm not. I'm not oh, Meltem. I'm not I, Novo. I don't yeah. have the tattoo. No, but you guys you know. notice that no one gives price targets anymore. That was like so 2020, early 2020. Oh, you're talking to the person who has more cash in his pocket than any. He's Absolutely. the only guy who still carries He's cash. Over around. Around. So, so, you know, okay. I go. Yeah. By the way, I don't think anybody gives a <laughs> shit particularly. But you go to the airport and I try to buy a magazine, yeah. and I hand it. They don't take money in these nope. places. It's just, it's the craziest thing. Yeah. What's the world? Is that what the is that the world that I live in? Because yeah. if it is, yeah. let me off the carousel because. It ain't working well, for me anyway, Danny. That's, that, that up. that's coming soon <laughs> enough. Um, last night, uh, Guy, you and I had a, an off-the-record conversation with a, a CEO of Goldman Sachs, and and I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about a comment that he made based on a question that I had um, that he's made publicly. But I think it's really important to hear it from 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 a guy in his position. We asked him what he thought about um, crypto as an asset class and, and and really thinking about demand from their clients, but also the underlying blockchain technology. It was kind of really interesting. What were, what were some of the, the takeaways that you had from what the way he was thinking about it from a technology because. You know, he said they have 50,000 employees globally. Half of them are in their 20s. And, and you know, we started the, this part of the conversation with him by saying that some of the smartest people that I know in finance and in tech, and, and generally a lot of them are younger than, than all of us just by design, they're all really interested in this asset class. You know what acceptance. I mean? Acceptance. I think yeah. it's institutional acceptance is sort of the theme there. Yeah. And 50, 55,000 employees at Goldman Sachs, to your point, half of that population is 28 and younger. And I think what David is seeing and what we've all seen, a lot of people, a lot of extraordinarily smart people have left Goldman Sachs to get into yeah. this world, this crypto world, this digital asset world. And I think he's realizing that. And I'm not speaking for him. I'm sort of trying to read between the lines and saying, listen, if we're going to lose some of our top talent, we better get in the game. So that's what I gleaned from yeah. that. So, you know, Jamie Dimon, I think, has done a complete 180, although probably if you were to ask him if he had a lie detector on him, I think he's still somewhat skeptical. But I still think he understands that this is an asset class that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, he really talked about the kind of dig digitization of finance in general. And when you think, and, and this was the, the really interesting takeaway for me, he's like, if it's not the blockchains that exist right now, these existing layer ones, it'll be another iteration because it's already proven itself to be a great disintermediator of a lot of processes and taking out um, a lot of costs. And I thought um, that was pretty um, interesting of itself. And, and he was basically talking about that, that big banks like his, they are going to be the most powerful fintechs going forward as they continue to invest in emerging tech. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's, well, they see the handwriting on the wall. And I think, again, Jamie Dimon was way ahead of that curve. He talked about fintech being sort of, again, I'm paraphrasing, but sort of the existential yep. risk for traditional bankers. And they've all come around to that. And that's exciting. And I think that's why this conference is doing so well. We're going to bring Ron out in a second. Yeah and talk about what's been going on here. But Danny, before, in the last minute we have before we bring Ron out, what's your takeaways? Just, again, you got yourself a little constructive, but you're seeing what's going on. I mean, you're seeing what's happening in the market. Is there this next leg lower? Um, I believe that there is. I think the S&P 500 finds a floor and an overshoot somewhere between 3,400 and 3,500. That makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? 
Yes, you have to really look. We talked about last year, the fourth quarter last year, if you just stopped the chart at the end of September and took out that gain that it had, that's where I kind of would have started from a correction perspective, meaning I thought it was all fluff in Q4. Um, and so I think we're going to, I see 3,000 to 3,200 on the S&P. And the reason I say that is there are plenty of companies which are probably done going down. These orphans will probably drift down 5, 10%. But people aren't going to pay attention because they're not going to go back up. But still, some of the big stocks that are out there, the large market cap stocks, they're still expensive. And people are hiding in them. So the throwing in the towel trade will be out of those names. And what's happening right now, in my opinion, if you're a portfolio manager, these are by definition becoming bigger and bigger in your portfolio. And you can't have that over time. So they'd be forced to reduce them. So I think it's a portfolio management risk thing. But I also think you have a lot of these beta neutral levered firms that are out on Wall Street. And when you start to see, when you see big moves like you did today, up 30 points on the S&P to down 40, a risk reversal, I might say, Dan. When something like that occurs, those are shops that are either turning down or up its various points. Those are program trading that comes in. Those aren't humans, but it, then it makes humans act in a certain way. So from a behavioral finance combined with fundamentals, things that I'm seeing, technicals in the market, I think we certainly are going to go much lower from here. But again, get your pencils and pens ready because there'll be a lot of buying opportunities. Well, it's interesting. Those algos, <clears throat> what they're doing right now is they're watching price go down and they're looking where the E is still sitting, okay? And, and they may look cheap relative to that E, but the problem here, and Morgan Stanley, again, lowered some earnings estimates for the balance of the year on some of the biggest contributors to the S&P's E, today, and I think that if you have that earnings number start to come down, it will justify lower prices. And so my view is probably very similar to you guys. I think we round trip the entire move in the S&P from the highs of February 20 pre-pandemic, which was about 3,400. And let's just say you get 215, 220, I don't know, dollars in earnings this year, and you put like a 16, 17 multiple, that's how you get there. I do the math too. Believe it or not, folks, I actually did go to college, not that anybody gives a shit in this room, but I'll say that on Friday nights in my junior year, we used to watch Miami Vice. Miami Vice, yeah, and I know you were. Yeah. I mean, you reek of it, by the yeah. way. But one of the great <laughs> episodes was the one that Brothers in Arms, Dire Straits, the last new band that I liked, they came out. That was sort of the theme song through. Why do I mention that? Because I'm going to bring Ron Biscardi up. And if you haven't seen him today, man, he is right off the set of Miami Vice. <laughs> look at this outfit this cat's got there going he is, Ron. That is fantastic. You look great. I mean, that is so, wonderful. Uh, I'm sure you Sonny know. would be no, proud. Mike Novogratz, Galaxy Digital CEO, our lead sponsor, was supposed to be here. Unfortunately, he had a family occurrence come up, so he couldn't make it. So they gave me the white pants. Yeah. It works. It works Mike's for honor. you. And the Mike's shoes. Honor. My God, you got it all yeah. going on. So if I'm being 100% honest, obviously with the move we saw in Bitcoin over the last month and a half, there's clearly apprehension coming into this conference, and justifiably so. I mean, when, when the world moves that dramatically, you get worried. But then you come down here and you see the engagement and you're going to speak to the meetings that people are having and some of the things that you're seeing just over the last 24 hours. It has to really embolden you and make you feel like you're absolutely on the right course here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am, uh, I'm old enough to have lived through the dot-com era and this period feels very similar to the dot-com era in that uh, you know, there clearly, you know, was a bubble. There was, you know, a lot of things totally overvalued, but it didn't mean that the internet wasn't a legitimate business and that there weren't a million things that were going to come out of that that were amazing. And obviously that's what took place. And I think we're in a similar situation here. And I think what we tried to do with this event was to really only invite the top tier funds, the funds that we know are very legitimate, they have staying power, they've already accumulated assets, 
because what we, what we saw, and I started the event with this comment, and I think I talked about it on your podcast last month, uh, the institutional allocator community is really focused on this space. Now, I'm sure the last you know, 30, 60 days has caused a bunch of people to tap the brakes, but they're not going away. You know, we have a small group of funds here that are taking in the range of six to 700 meetings between you know, about 500 in person here and another 100, 150 virtually. So yeah, I, I think we are just at the beginning of a new asset class and a, a, a new you know, sort of way of running lots of different software products and interfacing with the internet that you know, it's definitely here to stay. And I think this audience knows that. You know, it's funny, Ron. I mean, you, we've talked about it offline. I think we talked about it a little bit on our pod. I think the comparison to the built, you know, the lead up into the dot com is, I think is very apt. What's really different this time is that in the year 2000, we did not have multi-billion dollar funds being raised. I mean, there was just two in the last couple of months, Andreessen, right? And then yep. Katie Hahn. I think it combined six billion dollars so it almost ensures that sort of capital that there will be iteration there will be evolution in and around the ecosystem and so it really isn't just about let's say the coins or it wasn't about these dot coms that were unprofitable back then it's about the belief in the fact that the internet will be this thing or e-commerce will be this or digital payments will be that and i think that's a really good does that make sense to you that analogy yeah absolutely i think you have the I, I think also a lot of the people that are in this market live through the dot-com yeah. era, and they know, okay, we're not, we're not going to run and hide here. Like, this thing is really strong. And there are so many ways that you can take this new technology and apply it across the economy. I mean, I, I, I think we've really just scratched the surface. So I'm not really surprised. I mean, I think, to be fair, some of those funds were not fully digital asset-focused funds. I think they've got the purpose of, you know, sort of broader venture uh, yeah. investing, but with a significant component towards digital assets. Well, that, and my point is the venture aspect is the thing that might give it legs. It might give it a lot of breadth throughout, let's say, a protracted bear market, maybe in the yeah. digital assets, the underlying. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And, you know, it's eras like this where everything gets cheaper, talent is more available, that you build some of the greatest long-term businesses. So I think the players in the space have been, you know, they've been in the venture market for 30, 40 years. They've lived through a lot of cycles. They know this is probably a much better time to be building than a year ago. You're coming off an amazing conference. I think it was in January down here as well. I mean, the numbers were staggering. What do you learn from that conference? and What have you sort of implemented going forward? Uh, so, you know, what we learned is, well, first, everybody's like very happy to get back together in person, for starters. Uh, we had, you know, that, that event we threw at the height of the Omicron uh, surge. We went forward with it anyway because customers were telling us they really wanted to do it. And I'm glad that we listened because we had roughly 2,300 people in attendance at that event. Uh, so that was like, that was sort of our big coming out party at uh, iConnections. Uh, what we've got lined up for this year is uh, a whole set of events that we are supporting through our app. They're not our events per se, but they're partner events. So uh, Anthony Scaramucci uh, is obviously doing his SALT event again in September. They're using our app along with the whole booth setup that we'll create for them to enable one-on-one meetings to take place there. We're also partnering with SALT to do an event in Singapore, which we're really excited about to finally be bringing the thought leadership in Catro, uh, cap intro format to Asia. Uh, and then there are some other events like AMA's uh, 
Canadian event up in Toronto in the fall, another smaller event called Inversion Summits, which has a really uh, tight group of very high quality allocators that's going to take place in Napa Valley. That'll be a smaller, more boutique event, but very high end. So, you know, we're just trying to find every way that we can to benefit the community. How do we find ways to connect allocators and managers and get everyone to sort of get to know each other and understand what each other is looking for to just facilitate business? The word transactional has become one of those four-letter words for whatever reason. But in this sense, it's actually an amazing thing because these conferences are extraordinarily transactional. Things get done is the point. People are having a great time but business gets done. Can you sort of speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. We, we try to do uh, a thought leadership separate from the one-on-one meetings because I think if you do them together, they kind of eat into each other. So our thought process is we want to have great content from some of the best minds in whatever the space is that we're focused on and then follow that up with dedicated one-on-one meetings because if you go to a lot of the, the events that are not one-on-one meeting oriented, you kind of see people are like, on their phone a lot of times. As soon as the break hits, they're running out to do the networking because that's really what they're hoping to do is meet people that can move their businesses forward. So we just decided a long time ago, let's just be intentional about this. We know that's what everyone wants. So let's give them the thought leadership and help facilitate those meetings by letting them find each other in the app long before they walk in the room. So when they get here, they can just crank through the meetings. And you know, um, if you look in our app, uh, you can see two leaderboards, depending on which side of, you know, I can see both. But if you're an allocator, you can see the manager leaderboard. If you're a manager, you can see the allocator leaderboard. And it shows you how many meetings the top 20 on either side are taking. And, and these are huge numbers. You know, Galaxy has 41 meetings. I think CoinFund has 40 meetings. You go down the line, you know, the top 20 are cranking out. Like, these guys are going to be super busy tomorrow. That's great. No, I was going to say before we go, I'm sorry, Dan. I thought, you, before we get out of here, so... So much of what you are is about giving back. I mean, I've known you now for at least five or six years, and you've always been extraordinarily charitable, and you're doing it now with iConnections. Can you speak to what you're doing with Ukraine? Yeah, so uh, I think most of you know we ran uh, a uh, charity event, you know, starting when the war broke out, uh, and we wrapped it up at the end of May. Um, And the concept is really just what we did to start the business through our Funds for Food event, which I I know many of you participated in. Uh, But, you know, we started the business with this hugely successful cap intro event uh, where we raised about $1.9 for food insecurity at the height of the pandemic. And having started the business with that, it just feels like the right thing for us to do. So we've turned it into an annual event. So every year we target a particular area. So we did food the first year. We did mental health last year. We were actually going to do funds for kids this year, but then when the war broke out, it just felt like, you know, this was such a big, big event that we really needed to pitch in. So we've raised about $175,000 that'll be donated to, or most of it has already been donated to a, a firm called Consensus that's right there on the border in Poland, helping refugees get out of the country. Uh, as well as another charity that's actually supplying body armor to the uh, citizens, you know, who are not in the army, but they're signing up basically to protect their homes. Um, so, you know, we're very excited to have been able to do that. And then next year we'll we'll show up with funds for kids. Well, I'm, I was told we have a hard out at 1.30. That's a term that I just like saying because it sounds fun. And Ron, Dan, Danny, and I are thrilled to be part of it. You know, we're thrilled to have this relationship with iConnections. We're thrilled to be down here. I want to thank FactSet, one of our sponsors, 
obviously iConnections. Thanks, folks, for being here. The three of us will be floating around. And that wraps it up for MKT called Dan Nathan, Danny <laughs> Moses, and Ron Biscardi. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here.